Hey, treasure hunters. Do you have your own story about treasure lost or found? Send in your best stories about the unique, weird, or fascinating odds and ends your family has in their attic. And I may just read them on the show. The email you want is losttreasurepod at gmail.com. All one word. A note before we begin this episode. So if you remember the episode on the heirloom seal of the realm, you'll know that I really tried my best to pronounce Chinese in a passable way. So prepare for the same kind of result with me trying to pronounce Hindi. My apologies in advance to any listeners of South Asian descent. Trivandrum, capital of the state of Kerala, India, 2011. At the center of the city, at the center of the universe, sat the temple, marked by a golden multi-tiered tower a hundred feet tall. And no matter where you stood in Trivandrum, one could see the spire marking the shrine of Padmanabhaswami Temple, towering above all other things, even the Maharajas, who had long devoted themselves to the god of abundant love. Maybe this is why Trivandrum is known as the City of Bliss, and the state of Kerala, God's country. Nobody really knows when the temple was built, but records tell us it was constructed sometime between 500 and 300 AD. Some scholars of Hindu esoteric thought believe that the temple was built shortly after the commencement of the Kali Yuga, the final age of humanity, before the end of everything, and the beginning of a new cycle, just another turn of the karmic wheel on the endless road to Nirvana. Legend has it, at the spot where the temple was built, a sage prayed to the Lord Vishnu for enlightenment. It came to him in the form of a mischievous child, whose antics destroyed a former idol, Angered, the sage chased the child into the forest, whereby the little boy transformed into the reclining form of Vishnu, the preserver, with a lotus flower emanating from his navel, a symbol of eternal creation. And the sage was probably like, oh, crap, didn't realize it was you. Though I'm pretty sure this was kind of the point. Look, Hindu parables are obtuse, and men greater than I can make more sense of them. But the point was taken, and to venerate the god of harmony, the sage built the temple on the spot where this lesson was learned. And ever since then, the awe-inspiring shrine dedicated to the aspect of Vishnu known as Padmanabha, the lotus-enabled Vishnu, has been known as the Golden Temple. Because as far back as anyone can remember, the shrine has held a vast and enormous amount of treasure, and I'm talking a lot. The place is literally dripping with gold and gems. To this day, the temple remains the richest religious institution in the world, dwarfing even the Vatican's wealth. It is estimated that $22 billion of treasure are housed within its vaults as offerings to the god. This doesn't even take into consideration historical value or appraisal of these artifacts, possibly because it's impossible, as we'll find out, to document everything of value inside the temple's golden walls. But this is exactly what the state tried to do in 2011. In 2007, the jurisdiction of Kerala became concerned that the treasures of the temple might prove too tempting for even the most devout 
of the preserver. Nobody besides the high priests and the maharajas had even laid eyes on the rumored treasure in, well, centuries. It was believed that the vaults inside the temple were named according to the succession of the chakras, the points on the body that correspond to a different psycho-spiritual energy, with the lowest chakra equivalent to primal and basic instincts and the highest spiritual ascendance. The court order managed to open the first two of the six vaults, which were labeled from A to F. And what they found there was astounding. Brass chests dripping with silver and old coins, diamonds, and rubies. And this was only the first two chambers. The contents of the other vaults weren't confirmed until 2011, when gossip again caught the attention of the Indian courts. With all that treasure just sitting there, rumor was bound to get out at some point that someone was skimming off the top. So the state dispatched its lawyers to investigate and document all of the reliquaries of the temple, much to the chagrin of its wardens and priests who thought they were doing just fine guarding it. Common Indian law mandates that certain religious sites are off-limits to non-Hindus, so if someone was going to go snooping in the basements of the wealthiest temple in the world, it had to be someone who wouldn't piss off the deities. Enter T.P. Sundararajan, a lawyer with three decades of practice under his belt, some of which included a tenure in the Supreme Court of India. Sundararajan had been born into the Brahmin, or priestly class, and was essentially at the top of the Indian social climate. And T.P. wasn't devoted to just the law of the land, because when he wasn't studying legal texts, he was also studying ancient Hindu scriptures, and he was a staunch follower of Vishnu. Surely this was the right man for the job. Supposedly, the lawyer and the Maharaja didn't see eye to eye, though we will hear the Maharaja's story later. But the trustees of the temple had their hands tied. The way the temple operated both the government and the royal house had to cooperate in the goings-on in Padmanabhaswami Temple. T.P. Sundararajan headed the investigation, despite warnings from the Maharaja. Short of installing a grisly old farmer to stand there and ominously intone, Don't go in the vaults! The stewards of the temple made it very clear that the lawyers should not go messing with things they could not understand. But T.P. himself was a man of faith, so he felt well-equipped to take inventory. Besides, it wasn't like this was the Temple of Doom. Quite the opposite. The point of Padmanabhaswami was to celebrate life, compassion, and goodness. No malevolence was allowed inside its walls. Just good vibes. Oh, except for this one door. Because that's when things start to get spooky. One by one, the other five vaults within the temple were opened, each revealing a trove more magnificent than the last. Picture the literal cave of wonders from Aladdin, though remember, that's the Middle East, this is India. To give you an idea of what was inside those vaults, reports indicate that T.P. and his gang found a three and a half foot tall solid pure gold idol of Mahavishnu, bedazzled with diamonds and rubies, and sacks filled with other golden tchotchkes, such as crowns and tiaras and tons of diamond necklaces. It was practically absurd, and I can only imagine how those lawyers' eyes must have magnified at each find. And then... Things got weirder. As the team delved into the deepest vaults, which were also filled with opulent treasures, they started discovering things they couldn't quite explain, at least at first. 
The troves in the deeper vaults included 18th century Napoleonic coins and Roman coins from as far back as 200 BC. But of course, India has never been an isolated country. It's smack dab in the middle of civilization. European aristocrats had been sending out shiny things to the royal families of India for ages, but it did seem just a slightly bit out of the ordinary to see the pieces of the world's greatest empires all gathered up in a vault like some kind of history museum. When Sundararajan reached the final vault, he was stopped yet again by the temple priests, who told him in no certain terms that he had seen enough. And I'm sure for TP, this must have been a head-scratcher. The sight of all that had been uncovered was, unquestionably, the greatest stockpiling of gilded artifacts, jewels, and overall wealth ever seen in one congregated area. If all of that had been accounted for, then what, in the name of the gods, could possibly be waiting for them inside the final chamber? T.P. and his staff opened the dusty passage. Inside the chamber was not a stockpile of gold ingots, or giant diamonds, or the Holy Grail, but just one very large and very imposing door. It was a huge slab of metal fastened into the wall, and it was without any visible locks, latches, handles, mechanisms, or bolts to open it. Its only markings, in fact, were two frightening giant cobras painted onto the surface. It definitely didn't send the message, hey, come on in. So what was behind it? And how did one go about opening it anyway? Well, nobody really had an answer for that. And if they did, they certainly weren't telling. But what the priest did tell TP was the history of the final vault, otherwise known as Vault B. General consensus was that nobody in recent history had ever attempted to access the vault, and for a very good reason. Astrologers and mystics who had examined the door in ages past had foretold that great disaster would befall anybody who attempted to open the door by any means other than the ones prescribed by the gods. The only way to open it, they said, was to chant the mantra of the Garudas, a sacred song with the power to repel serpents and even cure poison. This enchantment, they said, would compel the door open. So like, low-key, the same exact logic applied to Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time or Lord of the Rings. But it wasn't as simple as saying, speak friend and enter, or open sesame. The only people with the power to make the magic words work were a sect of ascetic yogis, who no longer existed, at least as far as anybody could tell. For all parties involved, this was basically a dead end, and one that would soon become painfully literal. Only a month after the survey commenced, T.P. Sundararajan was struck ill by a heart attack, from which he would never recover. On July 17, 2011, Sundararajan passed away. Rumors spread as quickly as cobra venom. The otherwise virtuous man had been cursed for his interference with the sacred vaults, and not even his piousness could prevent the wrath of the divine. Whatever it was that killed T.P. Sundararajan still lay in wait, in secrecy and mystery, beyond the temple's final door. 
The Hindu belief system, if I were to provide a background that could actually do this religion justice, would probably take at least seven episodes, so hope you're all okay with the condensed version. The branch of Hinduism most closely associated with Vishnu is called Vaishnavism, and you can draw a few comparisons to Western theology. In this system of belief, Vishnu is seen as an omniscient being, kind of similar to the Western notion of God, who manifests themselves as multiple incarnations in order to interface with the physical world and, for lack of a better word, reality. What's complicated about Vishnu is that some worshippers think he's the main god and some think he's kind of connected to other gods or avatars, such as Krishna, so it kind of depends who you ask, really. Vishnu's physical avatar form is commonly depicted as a blue-skinned human with four arms, with a different holy object such as a lotus or disc in each hand. Whereas gods like Shiva are seen as righteous destroyers of obstacles, Vishnu is revered as a supreme preserver who dreams all of existence into being. Vishnu isn't just a good god, he's literally goodness itself. Scholars like to refer to Vaishnavism as a polytheistic monotheism. In other words, one god, many faces. But again, some other Hindus don't make the distinction and treat Vishnu's other forms, such as Krishna and Rama, as separate beings entirely. It's generally accepted that Vishnu sports ten different looks, and some modern Hindus interpret each incarnation as a reflection of the theory of human evolution and beyond from aquatic progenitors to spiritually enlightened beings. What's interesting about Vishnu is that the god doesn't appear all that often in some of India's most famous epics, but this doesn't diminish Vishnu's importance, as manifestations of Vishnu are well documented in the Hindu religious texts known as the Vedas. It is said that Vishnu will always appear when the cosmic order is thrown off balance, and when not saving the cosmos, the god rests peacefully on the hood of a giant cobra. And this universe-sized cobra is the king of all serpents. He is a being named Shesha. And to make things a bit more confusing, Shesha, or Ananta, is also sometimes considered but another manifestation of Vishnu. If you're a snake large enough to hold all of the planets themselves within your hood, it's probably utilitarian to come up with a more practical avatar for yourself when you need to head on down to Earth. So Shesha's avatar is Balram, or Balrama, who, besides having the coolest name ever, is venerated among farmers as an agricultural deity associated with the plow. Not sure what this has to do with snakes, so I welcome any Hindu input on this. Legend has it that Balram descended to earth one day and visited the Padmanabhaswami temple to give it his blessing and protection. He was believed to be the god responsible for creating the seal on the forbidden door, and one has to wonder what he was trying to protect. Being the king of all serpents, Shesha slash Ananta slash Balram commands the legion of the supernatural beings known as the Naga. In Hindu belief, Naga are kind of like snake centaurs, sometimes serpent from the waist down and man from the waist up. They're often prescribed warrior characteristics because under no circumstances should they be trifled with. Though the Naga can be somewhat malevolent, they're not necessarily considered evil, just forces of nature that occasionally can be reasoned with. People from certain branches and offshoots of Hinduism and Buddhism may even worship them, sometimes in the form of snake goddesses who bring fertility. And it's said that they may even mate with humans on occasion to produce offspring endowed with their powers. 
The Naga are heavily associated with bodies of water, such as rivers and springs, and this extends to their dominion over the element. They can create rains or monsoons and floods if they are angered. And allegedly, they're also known to protect treasure. Hmm. One of the more famous tales of the Naga comes from the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, which is comparable to the Iliad and the Odyssey, but actually twice as long as both of those books, because India has always come to play. Cuisine, epics, Bollywood, they're on top of it. The origin story of the Naga lies in a bet made between the wives of a powerful sage. The first wife, Kadru, was baby crazy. She wanted tons of offsprings. Vinata, the second, was more humble in her desires and wanted only a few children as long as they grew up to be virtuous and strong. Both of the women got their wish. Kadru laid a thousand eggs, which leaves me with a few questions about ancient human biology. And Vinata laid but two. The a thousand eggs became the Nagas, and the two eggs hatched as Surya, a Hindu sun god, and Garuda, the king of all birds. And both of the wives were like, okay, didn't see any of this coming, but cool. But when Garuda burst forth, apparently he and his brother were so bright that everyone thought that the world was ending, and the gods were like, you need to dial it back, fam. And apparently Kadri was a bit of a bitch, so she enslaved her sister Vinata and forced Garuda, king of all birds, to wait on them hand and foot. Or hand and talon, as the case may be. But Garuda was a good egg, and he wanted to release himself and his mother from enslavement. As the Mahabharata wasn't written by George Lucas, he didn't even have to enter a pod race. Instead, he had to steal the elixir of life. If you remember the episode I did on the first emperor of China, you know that this never works out okay for the people who want the elixir of life that badly. The elixir, also known as Amrita, was held within a fortress of the gods, and it was protected by a series of booby traps including, and I swear I'm not making this up, a giant death machine of warring blades, a wall of fire, and, you may want to take note of this for later, two giant poisonous snakes. Because everything in Hinduism is snakes. The gods saw Garuda coming their way and threw everything but the kitchen sink at him. But Garuda was literally one of the strongest cosmic beings in existence, so he tossed all of them aside like water, thwarted the death traps, and beat up the poisonous snake gods guarding the Amrita. Garuda nabbed the elixir and made a beeline back to Earth. But on his way down, Vishnu appeared in all of his glory and was like, Garuda, my bro, look at your life, look at your choices, this isn't you. Vishnu promised Garuda immortality without the need of drinking the Amrita if Garuda would serve as Vishnu's mount. Garuda agreed, and he also promised to the weather god Indra that he would return the elixir after all was said and done. He just needed a good plan to fool the Nagas and release his mother. So Garuda landed in front of the Nagas, and they were like, you got the goods? And he was like, you got my mom? Garuda placed the Amrita on the ground in front of the snakes, who were probably drooling over the chance to drink it up and become immortal like the gods. But Garuda was like, no, 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 no. You need to perform your religious duties before you can pop this off. So while they did that, Garuda freed his mother, swooped down, snatched up the Amrita before the Nagas could even get a taste. But a few droplets spilled onto the grass, just as the Nagas were slithering in to try to grab it. In desperation, 
they tried to lap up the immortality droplets off the sharp blades of grass. And it's said that this is why snakes have a split or forked tongue. And from ingesting a fraction of immortality, snakes are also able to regenerate by shedding their skins. After Garuda gave the elixir back to Indra, the weather god promised the bird king that he could feast on the naga whenever he wanted to. Which I guess is kind of a win? And ever since then, Garuda has been the sworn enemy of the naga. He's kind of like their kryptonite, actually, and his warding abilities extend to all manner of serpents that crawl upon the earth. Amulets adorned with Garuda's image are worn to keep cobras away. And the Garuda Vidya, a song and enchantment, is said to heal a victim of venom. It's this enchanted hymn that is said to open the door at Padmanabhaswami Temple. Before the rise of British colonialism in India, the lands were comprised of separate kingdoms ruled over by the Maharajas. The Maharajas lived largely, and some of them were better rulers than others. After a series of struggles, the Travancore royal family came to power in 1750 with their first ruler, Maharaja Anijam Tirunal Martanda Varma. After declaring victory, the king decided that he owed his triumph to the god of the nearby temple of Padmanabhaswami, and basically told everyone, Hey, I may be your human king, but don't listen to me, listen to Vishnu. So he placed all of his family's wealth inside the temple as offerings to the benevolent deity, and he appointed himself the grand custodian of the temple and its affairs. The political landscape had changed drastically since the era of British rule and the Maharajas have basically been stripped of everything but their ceremonial titles in favor of a democratic government. The current Maharaja and warden of the temple is Mulam Tirunal Rama Varma. Though Varma is well off, owning a spice and trading company, it sounds like he lives a modest life and is considered by the locals of Trivandrum as a man of the people. It was his predecessor, Utradam Tirunal Martanda Varma, who presided over the drama with the vault openings. Martanda Varma was also well-respected and kindly, and up until his dying days, he would climb the 1,080 steps to the temple shrine, as custom dictated he must do so every day, lest his ownership of the temple be revoked. In an interview in 2012, the former Maharaja attempted to clear the air of the rumor surrounding T.P. Sundararajan's death. He said that there was no bad blood between him and the lawyer, who had an issue with someone else inside the temple trust. When asked about the final vault, and if he'd seen what was behind the door, Martanda Varma basically said, Yep, and ain't nobody's business. Pressed further on whether or not the tampering of the vault would lead to cataclysm, the Maharaja just sort of shrugged and said, Already done, insinuating, essentially, Hey, remember the last guy who tried to open the vault? The centerpiece of the temple is an enormous statue of the reclining Lotus Vishnu, who is enshrined within the inner sanctum. Stone platforms surround the inner portion of the temple. Only the Maharaja is allowed to prostrate on the sacred platform in front of the god. There's no doubt that this is a very sacred place. In Hindu culture, there's a handful of places where Vishnu likes to manifest, and Padmanabhaswami Temple is one of the more important ones. But attention isn't so much on the relics above the temple, but below. 
and the priests have always said that there is a steep price to pay for messing with the wealth of the holiest of holies. Vishnu might be all forgiving and kind, but his friend Balram is not. And as the god of snakes, he's got a nasty bite. What would happen if someone decided to knock on his door and try to batter their way through the Cobra Guardians? Vedic astrologers have speculated that it could spell disaster for the nation of India. Or maybe even the end of the world. Great! The only people who can open the door are the sadhus, who are kind of like the Hindu version of ascetic monks or hermits. The sadhus give up all earthly possessions and plunge themselves deep into esoteric thought, studying the mantras of the rishis, the sacred poets and singers whose work can be found in the holy Vedas, or the Hindu scriptures. In times of yore, certain sects of sadhus were believed to possess extra-human powers, and it's one of these sects that is said to be able to sing the Garuda Mantra the proper way. But this sect hasn't been seen in public in what sounds like many years, and if there are still people with disability out there, they're nowhere in an accessible position. There's an apocryphal story from a book written about Trivandrum in the 1930s about a group of bandits who attempted to force open the door. Apparently, their attempt caused a bunch of cobras to slither out of the woodwork and chase them straight out of the temple. But the Maharajas have generally dismissed this tale as a load of bunk. The myth may have arisen, though, because of what people have supposedly heard when they press their ears to the forbidden door. Because why not? Rumors mention hearing the hissing of snakes or the rushing of water. The latter rumor lends theory that the door is holding back an underground river or a tributary of the sea, and that opening the door would actually cause a disastrous flood. But like, why build a door over this? It doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, you needed something to drive back an invading force. But this sounds highly impractical. And highly improbable. As improbable as a certain image floating around the internet. A few months ago, the tale of the final door was brought to my attention, in the form of the image you might be seeing if you're streaming this episode from the Relic website. <laughs> Looks like something from World of Warcraft, right? That's because it's an artistic interpretation, or in my opinion, a hoax. Note the fleur-de-lis iconography on the sides of the door. Definitely not something Indian in origin. As for the speculation surrounding the foreign treasures that were found inside the vault, it was believed that a bulk of the old coins came from the final vanguards of the British East India Company, who hid their wealth within the temple before they were driven back by the Maharajas and their armies. So, it's time for the debunking and demystifying part of the episode. Lame, I know. I'm going to give a shout out to Relic's best researcher, Robert Jenner, host of the Fan Film Boys podcast, which you should be subscribing to, by the way. He did a lot of detective work on this case, so I owe him a lot. He also unearthed an old Quora thread about the door, and an answer from one Devendra Kumar, an author, mechanical engineer, guitarist, technical grad, specialist in Vaishnavism, and, as he puts it himself, a global firepower. Kumar tried to link mechanical engineering to the construction architecture of the temple, using local sources and descriptions. He sounds like the kind of person Indiana Jones would kill to have. It also sounds like Kumar was able to access the records written up by the court of India when inventory was attempted on the temple. But he warns that some of the information is still legally under wraps. 
Yes, frustrating, I know. Kumar immediately shoots down the theory that a nest of magical cobras is lurking behind the vault, ready to jump out any Tomb Raiders foolish enough to jerry-rig open the big scary door. If there are snakes being kept alive back there, then it means someone has to be feeding them. And the only way this would be possible is if someone had access to the door from an external location, such as a hidden tunnel. Kumar also points out the one question about this whole story that nobody's bothered to ask. How the hell do you get all that treasure into a temple without anybody seeing it? He speculates that the priests and trustees of the temple have had access to a hidden system of tunnels that the public is unaware of. Okay, so yeah, this is definitely starting to sound like Temple of Doom now. Where are these tunnels exactly? Well, maybe the door of the final vault isn't something that you're supposed to go into, but out of. As in, the door is the secret hub that connects the passageways and makes it easier to deposit all of this treasure. It would be very clever for the powers that control the temple to come up with a story telling the public that the door is forbidden, so nobody gets suspicious and tries to blow open the means via all of which this precious loot is coming into the complex. Still, Kumar doesn't assert this as a final answer or a fact, it's just speculation. And he points out that the door seems welded shut and would require high focus lasers to open it. Simply put, nobody is getting into Vault B anytime soon. And forget about curses, if you tried to force your way into something that old, there's serious risk of damaging an irrecoverable piece of history. And you know, an important aspect of one of the world's major religions. At this point, I think everyone just wants to know, what's really behind the door? Well, the internet has aggregated quite a few theories, and most of them are pretty interesting. This is the fun part, but I want to make it known that I do not endorse any of these theories as being credible, though they certainly are colorful. So with that said, let's take a deep dive. The first theory is that behind the door lies a leftover weapon from one of the mythical wars between the gods, as detailed in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Like the legendary events of the Trojan Wars recorded by Homer, these battles were fought between mortals and gods alike. So there was a lot of magic and crazy weaponry involved. Some people, by which I mean randos on the internet speculating about a culture and religion they don't belong to, think that one of these legendary weapons made its way to the vault of Padmanabhaswami Temple, which is why the custodians of ages past were so keen on keeping the relic behind the vault sequestered. And you'll know why in a second. Of all the legendary weapons in Vedic lore, none are more feared than those that only the gods could wield, weapons known as the Astra. These included the arrows of Indra, god of the weather and war, which could split and bring down hundreds of arrows from the sky. Others, such as Shiva's trident, could destroy literally anything it struck. Then there was Vishnu's holy discus, which was said to contain unimaginable mystical energy that could wipe out the entirety of existence if need be. Now, I know what you're thinking. This sounds literally like a concept for a video game, and I am so here for it. And take a guess which one of these artifacts may be hidden behind that final door. If you guessed the magical doom disc, you'd be correct. 
Like the Iliad and the Trojan War, there is some shaky but historical evidence that the Kurukshetra War described in the Mahabharata actually transpired. Remember, people didn't think Troy was a real place until the ruins of Ilium were discovered in the late 19th century. And ruins of cities described in the Mahabharata were likewise found in corresponding parts of India. Though our collective history has a pretty good grasp on the progression of human technology, there's always a few strange curveballs, such as the Antikythera mechanism, that leave archaeologists and historians alike scratching their heads, and ancient astronaut theorists throwing their tinfoil hats up in the air in celebration. We can sometimes forget that knowledge can easily be lost in time periods when records were not as well kept, disasters and war were frequent, and houses of accumulated wisdom, such as the Library of Alexandria, are burnt to the ground. The knowledge of clockworks demonstrated in the Antikythera mechanism proved that humankind had developed this type of engineering farther back than what was once thought, to the point that we as a species didn't rediscover clockwork technology until the 14th century. So it's within the realm of reason, albeit a bit of a stretch, that there was some technology in the time of the Kurukshetra War that could have easily been lost in the following generations, especially if it was rare or hard to craft. And this hypothetical thing could have been an advanced weapon of some sort, intricate and powerful enough that any soldier on the opposing side might mistake it for a weapon of the divine. Maybe something like this survived as an heirloom, safely kept within the temple at Trivandrum. And as an apology to those ancient alien buffs out there, I'll throw you a bone. Maybe the technology described in the Hindu epics was from an alien race, taken for gods by mortal men. And this extraterrestrial technology is what's being guarded behind the secret vault. Can you imagine opening up the door and coming face to face with a flying saucer? There are some other internet generated theories I'll briefly skim over, purely for the sake of entertainment. Some think that the secret of the vault is a vessel or a vial containing an otherwise extinct or deadly virus that could wipe out all of humanity if unleashed. The biggest leap of the imagination by far, though, is that the door is a VIP access entrance to the abode of the gods themselves, or the portal to another dimension, perhaps the one that the alien combatants of the Mahabharata used to return to their world when the fighting was over. Maybe opening the door would allow them to come back. With all of that said, I do kind of have my own wild theory. I don't actually believe this is the real answer, but this theory does tie in to the legend of Garuda and the Nagas. You'll remember that in the tale, Garuda has to fight two giant snake warriors who guard the Amrita, or the elixir of immortal life. And what's carved or painted on the door of Vault B? Two cobras. Maybe beyond that door lies immortality. And that's what's so fun about this mystery. And what is so much in keeping with Hindu teachings. Until the Maharaja and the trustees of Padmanabhaswami Temple open the door of Vault B, we can never know what lies behind the door. And it's prudent to accept the lessons of Balram's secret. Not everything is knowable, and that's part of what keeps us going, forever searching, or forever reincarnating, on that frustratingly beautiful hunt for the most important treasure of all, 
the wisdom that lies within the truth. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. Research for this episode was done by Robert Jenner of the Fan Film Boys podcast. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to spread that good karma, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. We also now have a Facebook group called The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure podcast group. And it's not just about the podcast. Right now, there's a few conversations bubbling about Lost Treasure and general unsolved mystery goodness. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or most importantly, corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E. In two weeks, we're waffling over to Belgium in search of the world's most frequently stolen and famously missing painting. The adventure continues. <laughs>